John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. It's the end. Word of the God. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for... Uh your great mercy to us in uh, feeding us with your word that is truth about Jesus. And uh, Father, we pray for ourselves, we pray for the children as well, that what we learn would be uh, nourishing us, feeding our souls, challenging us and uh, confirming us in the great gospel of Jesus that we would live lives that are worthy of him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Andrew, could you go flick the switch on for these lights here? Because the uh, <coughs> spotlight's not working. So, uh, <coughs> that way it might make it easier for people to see. Uh, one of the most historically interesting cities in the world is Istanbul. That's surprising, isn't it? Uh, it might surprise you, but let me ask you this. Uh, in which continent is Istanbul located? Is it, uh, some say Europe, some say Asia. It's actually both, isn't it? It's both. It's, uh, the answer is both. The, the answer is that Istanbul is built on the, at the very point where the two continents meet. The, uh, the city is divided by a narrow waterway, which is called the Bosphorus, or the Bosporus, uh, which simply means the strait. And uh, half of the city is on the European side and half of the city is on the Asian side. 
And that's actually very deliberate. It, uh, it's historical, really. Uh, it goes back to the fourth century, because in the fourth century AD, the Roman Empire had expanded a long way east of Rome. And uh, the Emperor Constantine had a vision. He had a vision for a, a new capital city of the empire. Uh, Rome was now a very long way away from where the armies were as they were consolidating the, uh, the new frontiers of, of Western Asia. And besides, Rome had become establishment. Uh, Rome was described as being a, a playground for disgruntled retired politicians. <laughs> and so uh, there was already a city uh, which was called Byzantium, which was uh, located at that strategic meeting point of the uh, two continents, Europe and Asia. Uh, built on the Bosphorus, uh, Byzantium had an excellent harbour. Uh, it was the, was the commercial gateway uh, b between the Mediterranean and the Aegean seas and into the Black Sea. And so Constantine chose Byzantium as the site for his new Rome. Uh, he developed it, redeveloped it, and in 330 AD he renamed it Constantinople after himself. Uh, Constantinople means the city of Constantine. For Constantine, the, the new capital city was a strategic shift. It was a far more strategic location than Rome. But it also meant that the capital of the Roman Empire had now shifted to the very regions where, uh, much earlier, the Apostle Paul and other Christians had evangelised, had uh, spread the gospel and had planted churches. Uh, the churches that we read about in the book of Acts and uh, in the epistles of the New Testament. Now these churches by this stage were of course now very, very well established churches which had endured the persecutions which we spoke about at length uh, last week. Constantine was the first emperor to identify himself as being a follower of Jesus, the King of Kings. And so uh, during his time, as we mentioned last week, official imperial persecution of Christians finished. But there were other challenges which threatened the uh, Christian churches. There were challenges which were coming from within. Now, in the years after the New Testament had been written, there continued to emerge false teachers. It's always the case. And uh, in these uh, following the New Testament, false, more false teachers emerged, which meant that the churches, or if we can talk about the Christian church collectively, had to grapple with issues about the, the nature of Christ, who Christ really is. Uh, issues such as, is Christ fully God? Uh, is Christ fully man? And if so, how do the two work together and what are the implications of that. Uh, there were influential leaders who taught that Jesus was not fully God. 
there were others who taught that Jesus was not, he was not one of us. He was not fully man. The most influential of these teachers at the time of Constantine was a man by the name of Arius. Uh, he was an elder in the uh, church in the great city, North African city of Alexandria. Uh, he wasn't a big scholar, but he was a big personality. Now, in a nutshell, Arius taught that Christ had not eternally existed. That is, there was a time when Christ was not. Uh, Christ was, a, was created by God. Uh, he was a, an, an exalted spiritual creature but not God. That was his teaching, in a nutshell. Now, in the 4th century AD, uh, this teaching came to be known as Arianism. By the way, can you think of any groups today that teach something similar to what Arius was teaching in the 4th century? Think Saturday mornings, you're at home mowing the lawn and someone drops in to see you. <laughs> Yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses, of course. The Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they, do not, they teach that Jesus uh, is not God. They teach that he's a lowercase g God, a, a created being, uh, similar to Arius in the 4th century AD. So there's nothing new. Uh, they're just rehashing an old teaching, an old heresy. Now, what does the Bible teach about this? Well, there are plenty of passages that we could look at. We could do a whole series on this, but because of the nature of this series, I want us to be looking at historical development of doctrines. I just want us to open up the issue from one of the key passages, which is uh, John chapter 1. So if you'd like to open that up, let's take a, a look at John chapter 1 for a few moments. And I'm going to read the first couple of verses for you. Everyone got that open? John chapter 1, page uh, 750. Uh, John says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, <clears throat> John's written this gospel in the first century. Uh, many of uh, John's original readers were Gentiles, were, were Greeks. And in Greek thinking... They believed in a supernatural force called the Logos, or translated, which means the Word. Uh, they believed that uh, everything uh, that existed uh, had come from the Word, and that the Word is a, a force which permeates everything and which determines all things. Now, of course, we wouldn't be silly enough to believe in something like that, would we? May the force be with you. <laughs> as they say. Right? So that's what they believed. The Greeks believed in this word, this impersonal force that was creator and uh, permeated all things. Some of John's readers, of course, were Jews and they would have also believed in the word, but for them, the word was simply the voice of, of God. Think creation. Think Genesis chapter 1. When God created the universe, what did he do? He spoke. He spoke a word and the universe came into existence. And so when Greeks read these verses, they'd be thinking, great, John is about to say something about the impersonal force that rules the world. And a Jew would think, well, great, John is going to say something about the personal and the powerful God who 
only had to speak for the universe to come into existence. And what we see here in these opening verses is what John has done is John has hooked his audience, hasn't he? He's hooked his audience. Notice in verse 1 what he does say about the word. Three things. First of all, the word was present at creation. Secondly, the word was with God, which means he's therefore distinct from God, and we would understand that as God the Father. But thirdly, the word actually is God. It says the word was God. So how can the word be both distinct from God but also be God? Well, let's read more, shall we? Verse 3. Verse 3, he says, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of, the, of, of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Now, what John is claiming here is that everything in all of creation has been made through the word. Everything, without exception. The word is the creator. The word is the one who gives life and who sustains life. And friends, these are claims which can only be made rightly of one being. And that being, of course, is, is God. We'll go down to verse 14. In verse 14, John makes an announcement which would have astonished both Jews and Greeks. In verse 14, he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, or the glory of the only begotten, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. Uh, in John's first letter, he says that, uh, you know, that which we, we've, we've, we've seen him, our eyes have seen him, our hands have touched him. Here he's saying the word became flesh, that he's a person, that we know him, that we've seen him, we've touched him, we've heard him, and we have seen his glory like Moses we have seen the glory of God. That's the claim that John makes. And so finally, John reveals the identity of the word. Uh, John the Baptist had prepared the way for the word. And so in verse 16, John declares, from the fullness of his grace, we have, we have all received one blessing after another, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and no one has ever seen God but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's, right, Father's side, has made him known. No one's ever seen God but God, the only begotten, the one and only. If you want to see, if you want to know God, then look to Jesus. Because Jesus is the Word, the Word who has become flesh. And so, throughout his uh, ministry, Jesus gradually revealed his identity as God the Son. Uh, Jesus did things which only God can do. I mean, he 
Jesus controlled nature. Uh, Jesus forgave sins, which God alone can do. Jesus accepted worship, so that after his resurrection, doubting Thomas worshipped him as my Lord and my God. And Jesus did not rebuke him for that. Jesus accepted worship as God, which means that he's either God or he's a very serious blasphemer. Right? The Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God. But he's also fully man. <clears throat> Some of the teachers in the early church taught that Jesus was God, but they said that he was too spiritual to be a man, that, that he only appeared to be a man. He only seemed to be like a man. For the doctrinal nerds amongst us, that's called docetism. Anyway, you don't have to remember that. But the Bible is quite clear that Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of Mary, is the perfect man. He is the second Adam, as Paul says in Romans. There's another verse which is helpful in this regard, just a, one that kind of captures it. Uh, come with me for a moment over to Romans chapter 9, if you don't mind. Uh, which you'll find on page 801. Have a look at Romans chapter 9, verse 5. Now, Paul here is talking about the, the Jews. And look carefully at what he says in verse 5 of the Jews. Everyone got that? He says, Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human, as the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Kind of nails it, doesn't it? Human ancestry of the one who is God over all. Amen. Fully God, fully man. <clears throat> now there's a lot more in the Bible that we could look at, but that just gives it to you in a nutshell. How, therefore, did the early church resolve the conflict that was caused by Arius? Um, they tell me that if you go to Istanbul these days and you, you catch a ferry from the city uh, across the small sea that the city is also built on uh, to the other side, and then if you catch a local bus that uh, takes you through the countryside, through the olive groves and through the fig orchards and so on, and stuff that they grow there, uh, to a you can go to a town which is called Iznik. Now, it's off the tourist map. Uh, Constantine built a palace for himself at Iznik. Uh, these days, his palace is underwater, and the town itself is just a very sleepy, um, dusty, small country town. But the significance of Iznik in the history of the Christian church is beyond calculation. After the time of Constantine and Arius, the town of Iznik had a, 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 a sorry at the time of Constantine and Arius, the town of Iznik had another name. Uh, it was actually called Nicaea. Does that ring a bell? Hmm. In the uh, fourth century, the teaching of Arius was destabilizing churches across the empire. 
And even as a Christian politician, Constantine was more concerned with uh, unity and peace than what he was concerned with theology. So in uh, 325 AD, he invited church leaders from around the empire to meet at his palace uh, by the water uh, at Nicaea. And the reason was to sort out the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Sort it out. Get unity. The vast majority of church leaders at Nicaea knew that Arius was wrong, but expressing clearly what the Bible does teach about Jesus was turned out to be a much more difficult process. They rejected Arius's teaching that Jesus is just a created being. But they wrestled with the issue of the nature of Christ in terms of whether Jesus uh, is the same as the Father in his essence, for want of a better word, or, or in, his, uh, in his substance, in his, in his being. Is Jesus the same as the Father in his being, or is he just like the Father in, in his being, in essence of who he actually is and his, um, uh, and his, uh, his, his existence? Uh, <coughs> interestingly, in one sense, it was, a, it was a debate about just one tiny little letter in the Greek alphabet, <laughs> uh, the letter iota. I'll explain that to you. The, the Greek word for same substance or same essence is the word homo usios. Uh, and some people were saying, well, why don't we just stick a little iota into that word and instead of saying homo usios, say homoi usios. Uh, instead of saying of the same substance, let's say of like substance. Uh, one iota of difference, but the difference between heaven and hell. The difference between whether Jesus actually is God or is just like God. I guess the phrase one iota of difference is going to take on a different meaning for you now, isn't it? And I think that's possibly where it comes from. But that was the issue. Uh, you'll be pleased to know that the Council of Nicaea agreed to a statement which affirmed the Bible's teaching about Jesus, that he is fully God and fully man. But it, it turned out that that was not the end of the story because over time Arius and his followers continued to agitate and after Constantine died, his son became emperor. His son's name was Constantinius, very imaginative. Uh, and Constantinius, the new emperor, he leaned towards Arianism. And so he convened a new council of the churches, which under imperial pressure, the church leaders caved in and they actually reversed Nicaea, the church leaders now described Jesus as being like God, but not actually God. Imagine that. 
Imagine how you would feel if you're a Christian in those times and you've just got word that your church leaders have gone and turned us all into Jehovah's Witnesses <laughs> officially. Imagine that. But God had many faithful people in his church. Um, one Bible translator named Jerome just described the view from the pew, as it were, saying, and I quote, the whole world groaned and was astonished to find itself Aryan. End of quote. Another faithful man was named Athanasius. Athanasius uh, came from <coughs> Carthage in North Africa. And as a young man, Athanasius had actually been present at Nicaea. Um, Athanasius held very firmly to the Bible's teaching that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And Athanasius was intelligent, uh, he was articulate, he was passionate, and he understood that this was an issue which is actually a fundamental gospel issue. It's an issue which affects our salvation. And so he fought hard. He fought very hard throughout the rest of his lifetime. Sometimes they said it was, uh, it was Athanasius versus the world. Uh, he ended up getting banished. They actually banished him to go and live, uh, next, live by a river in France. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't mind being banished. That, I think that's probably a different kind of banishment to what it would be nowadays uh, to go and live by a river in France. But Athanasius was banished. And after his death, there were others who kept up the fight. There were a group of theologians who were nicknamed the Cappadocian Fathers. And uh, they kept on fighting over this foundational gospel issue until in 381 AD, the emperor, Emperor Theodosius, uh, invited the church leaders to the capital city of Constantinople to sort this matter out, hopefully once and for all. To express with clarity and with unity the truth about Jesus. Friends, the Council of Constantinople uh, reaffirmed Nicaea, that Jesus is indeed fully God and fully man. And they actually expanded on Nicaea uh, to what is technically called the Nicaean Constantinopolitan Creed. That's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> the Nicaean Constantinopolitan Creed, a creed which for the past 16 centuries has been read in churches around the globe and is known simply as the Nicaean Creed. I actually thought it might be helpful for us to read the Nicene Creed today. It's not something which we've normally done in church, but uh, with that background it might be a helpful thing for us to do. And so I've printed that for you on our sheets there. There are some words in the Nicene Creed that require a bit more explanation. I'll just pick one of them though, and that's where it says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now please do not feel obliged to replace that and say, I believe in the Holy Presbyterian Church. <laughs> it's not making a statement about any denomination. The word Catholic means uh, according to the whole. Catholos, it's the original, according to the whole. It's saying that I believe in a church which 
uh, of all believers who are united together in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So why don't we read this together? And I suggest we stand so that we can really uh, use our lungs well and affirm uh, the faith uh, that, uh, that we hold to. So can we do this? Um, if I, uh, well, let's just start. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, sit down then. And uh, <clears throat> there's obviously stuff in that about the broader uh, doctrine of the Trinity, and I um, plan to address the issue of the Trinity in the next talk on this series, which will be in a couple of weekends' time. But fully God, fully man. It's not just a theological idea. It's actually an essential gospel truth. An essential gospel truth. Jesus hung and he died on a Roman cross. As fully God, it was a sacrifice of unimaginable eternal value. As fully man, it was a sacrifice for us. He stood where we should have stood. He stood in our place. He stood as our representative. He was the perfect man operating, op offering the full and perfect sacrifice in our place so that we can be forgiven of all of our sin and made right with God. Meaning, friends, that you and I have something which Arius and his 21st century followers... <laughs> do not have and cannot offer. And that is assurance of salvation. That the sacrifice that was paid was the sacrifice of God himself. A sacrifice which was sufficient, 
which is more than sufficient to pay for every sin that's ever been committed by any person everywhere, anytime. A sacrifice which is applied to those who choose to trust in him through faith. A sacrifice for those who, as we truly trust in Jesus, can now know that we are right with God, both now and for all of eternity. Now as for Istanbul, the old Constantinople, I read recently in the paper that they're, that they're building an, an, under, an underwater tunnel uh, underneath the Bosphorus to connect one half of the city to the other half. You know, a bit like the Sydney Harbour Tunnel, that they're in the process of, of building that. And as they were building that, uh, they discovered that just in the very small section of the Bosporus that they were going to lay the tunnel on, they've discovered at least 14 ancient Byzantine-era shipwrecks. <laughs> and the archaeologists have said, stop the work. The mayor of Istanbul has, say, has said, no way. <laughs> no way. He said, you can't stop the work. I'm, <coughs> I'm, I've got hundreds of thousands of people who need to commute from one part of the city to the other part of the city to get to and from work every day. I'm solving traffic problems here. Who cares about history? <coughs> well, you didn't quite say that. <laughs> but who cares about history? Well, ancient Byzantine-era ships are one thing. The ancient doctrine of Christ is quite another. And it's this kind of history that you and I need to care about. So that like Athanasius and other bold, courageous, faithful men and women of the past, that we might stand firmly for the truth about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in your wisdom and your great mercy that uh, you uh, sent your only begotten Son into our world to live amongst us, to die for us, so that uh, the full and sufficient sacrifice for sin could be made and that we could be made right with you. We pray, Father God, that we would grasp this great truth, uh, not only in our heads but in our hearts, that we would now live lives of gratitude, lives of serving you. Father, we pray that we would be people who have a clarity of thought about these issues and a boldness of heart, that we too would stand firm for the truth about Jesus. And we pray that that truth would be shown by the way that we live our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.